Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. Today we're wrapping up uh, this series, BC, Before Christmas, that has been leading us up to our Christmas celebration. And uh, last week, if you were with us, I talked about some of the best gifts that I had hoped for and and ultimately received uh, from Christmases back in the day. Uh, Today, I want to shift gears and kind of balance things out, I guess, by talking about those gifts that we get sometimes that are just a little bit disappointing. Have you ever experienced that where you open it up and it's just not what you thought you were going to get or maybe not what you ever wanted? Why is it, it seems like whenever you get a disappointing gift, it's from someone who is very eager to see you open it, right? It's always like, here, I got this for you. Open it. I want to see. And so you like unwrap it and you open it and you're like, oh, this is what I wanted. Thank you. And like they can read it on your face. So then they're like, well, there's a gift receipt in there, and, and typically you're like, well, I'm going to throw it away anyway, so it's okay. Uh, I didn't want to, like, shame anybody for the gifts that they've given me. I was, like, close enough last week talking about my step-grandma. <laughs> so uh, instead of talking about specific gifts that I was disappointed by, I went to the Internet just to look at some of the uh, most disappointing Christmas gifts that have been received in recent years. Uh, the first is an incredible dad joke, which I appreciate. Are you guys familiar with Beats by Dre, the really expensive, really nice headphones? Some dad was like, all right, kiddo, I'll get you Beats by Dre, I guess. And you just put the Beats on the headphones. It's dad of the year right there. Uh, The next one is kind of similar. I saw multiple stories of kids who had asked for iPads for Christmas. (laughs) And look at that face. I have been on the receiving end of that look from my daughter, and it's the like, I know you're mocking me, and I will pay you back someday (laughs) look right there. Uh, This next one, I I don't know if you've ever experienced an obvious re-gift. It's painful when this happens, and this is brutal. So this person said, when I was eight or nine years old, my grandma gave me a Christmas ornament. It was a little stuffed cherub with pink cheeks and yarn hair. I cried because I had saved up my allowance to buy it for her the year before. (laughs) Right? It's like, grandma, come on. You got to remember. So just because that's kind of a bummer uh, to land on, I've got one more just to get us laughing again. Uh, It was this a roller coaster of emotions. First, it looks like a frying pan. So you're like, cool, that's great. It's useful. We open it up and wait, there's an iPhone box inside of it. And then you open that up and it sucks. It's just <laughs> disappointing, right? So such a roller coaster of emotions. It's funny to laugh at some of these examples, right? It's funny, uh, even funny to laugh at ourselves when we're in these moments and we see disappointing gifts around a holiday. Uh, it's another thing altogether when you're disappointed with something big in life. It's another thing altogether when disappointment shows up in the hopes and dreams that we have. And and when you find yourself, maybe even this season, you're saying to yourself, you know, I thought I would be somewhere different than I am right now. Maybe you just hit a milestone age or something. You thought life would be a little farther along than where I am right now. I thought I would have that promotion by now. I'm doing the work, right? But the boss isn't noticing. And I I thought I would be there by now. Or, Or I thought that relationship that I want would exist in my life by now. I thought it would have materialized at this point. Maybe if you look at your life right now, it's a little disappointing if you're honest because you're like, I thought I would have figured out life or my mortgage or my kids or whatever it may be. Like we all have these moments in life, if we're honest, where disappointment shows up. And I think it's difficult for us to know, like what do we do with that kind of disappointment? What do we do when life feels like that? And what do we do, especially around the holidays, right? When it's like uh, things aren't going the way that we want them to. 
Today, uh, we're going to continue to look at the same group of people we've looked at over the past few weeks. And it's a group of people who understand what it's like to experience disappointment uh, on a big level. So this series, uh, like I said, it's called BC. It stands for Before Christmas, which I know is not actually what it stands for. We're just trying to be a little creative. Uh, But what we're doing throughout this season is we're looking at the backstory to the main story of Christmas. I I was actually thinking about it. It's kind of, I haven't talked about Star Wars enough recently, so um, it's kind of like with Star Wars, right? There's four, five, and six, the original like main story that a lot of us know and love. And now like Disney has it. So they're just producing all these other like side stories and spinoff stories that provide context to the main story. That's sort of what we're doing through this series. If Christmas is the main story, we're looking at some of the setup and some of the backstory uh, that led up to Christmas. And the reason we've been doing this is because if we can understand the promises that God made to people back then, it can help us trust that God will be faithful to his promises now. When we understand that God was faithful then, it helps us trust, even if we're in a disappointing circumstance, that God will be faithful now. So we've been looking at the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is the first half of the Bible. It tells the story of the people of God before Jesus walked this earth. And we've specifically looked at this era or this time known as the Age of Kings, where uh, Israel had been established as a nation and they put kings in charge to lead the way. And then God would often speak to these kings through prophets. And prophets weren't people who necessarily predicted the future and they didn't walk around with like a clapboard on them or anything like that. What we've said is that prophets are simply messengers from God with a message from God. That they would show up and often they would bring messages occasionally of comfort, sometimes of hope. More often than not, they brought challenging messages. They they challenged those in authority who weren't doing what they ought to do. And so we've looked at people Uh, like the prophet Micah. And we looked at the prophet Jeremiah, both who offered these promises of peace and of hope. And uh, today we're going to look at another prophet, the prophet Malachi. Uh, And again, a prophet in Hebrew, it actually literally translates in English as somebody who sees. And so prophets were the people who saw the stuff going on in the people of God that nobody else wanted to see. And that's why they weren't very popular, because often they would bring to the surface these tensions or these problems. And so Malachi is one of these prophets. And again, we're in the story of God's people. And at the time, we've shown you this map uh, each week. Uh, Basically, sorry, not that one. That's still true. You're fine, man. Uh, There's a map. And basically what's happening is the kingdom of Israel was split into two. On the north, uh, there's the kingdom of Israel. And then the south became the kingdom of Judah. And and everything was disrupted uh, amongst God's people. Uh, The northern kingdom eventually was conquered by the Assyrians, this outside nation that came in and oppressed God's people. Shortly after that, Judah or southern Israel was conquered by the Babylonians and everything in their life. I mean, talk about disappointing. It's like beyond disappointing. It was disruptive. It was oppressive. They had no idea what was happening or how to navigate it. And so one other thing we've done every single week, uh, just to bring the cheese factor to the holiday season, uh, I found these versions of Twas the Night Before Christmas, but it's like the stories of the prophets. And so just to round things out, here's Malachi's story through the lens of Twas the Night Before Christmas. Twas a thousand years before Christmas, around 930 BC, Israel split into two kingdoms led by mostly bad kings. So God sent the prophets to speak words that were true, but nobody listened and the kingdoms fell through. When the southern kingdom fell, Israelites were kicked out. The people couldn't tell what God's plan was all about. They later returned to rebuild their temple and reclaim their land. But as the prophet Malachi writes, it wasn't that grand. The people were disappointed, wondering if there's even a God above. But in the middle of this doubt, God shows Malachi a sign of his love. You'll never have to sit through another one of those again, okay? 
But that's the context. That's what's happening in Malachi's story. Uh, the people in Malachi's time had been through a lot. Like I said, there was this uh, conquering nation that had occurred. There was all this uh, difficulty and disruption. Uh, actually, at this moment, not only had the Babylonians taken over uh, the southern kingdom of Israel, but they took the people and they exiled them from their land. It's known as the Babylonian exile or Babylonian captivity. It, it was this terrible moment where God's people were taken away from their nation. Again, they were so disrupted and uh, they were disappointed for good reason. Eventually, the people are allowed to return while there's still Babylonian rule happening. Uh, so they're brought back to the land and they're actually allowed to rebuild their temple, which the temple uh, back in that day was like the epicenter of their culture and of their faith practice. So their people are allowed to rebuild the temple after the Babylonian exile and it's rebuilt, but it's like, it's not quite version 2.0, like it is, but it isn't. The people look at it and they're like, it's not it's not like the old one. It, it's just kind of disappointing. It's like a shell of what it once was. And if anything, it's just a memory of how things used to be before they were oppressed. And it's around this time, uh, around 430 BC, that God speaks to this prophet Malachi. A and so the people are back in the land. The temple has been rebuilt, but it's just kind of disappointing. And I think that feeling that the people had back in the land it can be the same feeling that the holidays can bring for us if you've experienced or you're facing any disappointment. Like that temple was sitting there in the land, but it just was a reminder of what's not anymore. And sometimes Christmas can feel that way. Like if you're struggling this season and, and you're hearing all the music, right? And it's supposed to be holly jolly, but it's like you're more grumbly than holly jolly and you're just like feel the pressure. Like why is this season not what it's supposed to be for me? Or, or maybe you've experienced loss and you know the pain of setting the table that next Christmas where there's an empty plate where a person used to be and, and you feel the, the pain of that. Maybe just as life has gone on, your traditions have changed and, and it's something that we grieve, right? There's, things are different than they once were and sometimes it can be disappointing. That's kind of the context that God's people were in. They looked at this temple and they're like, it's not what it once was. And in the midst of it, the book of Malachi actually begins this way. It says, a prophecy the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. So the people are disappointed and God shows up and he says, hey, I have loved you. And I can imagine the people are like, really God? Like you, you've loved us? Like loved us all the way to Babylon and back? <laughs> like you, you loved us so much that we were disrupted? And uh, it's one of those cases where the English doesn't quite capture the context of what God is really saying here. In English, it just seems like this simple profession of love. Uh, in the original Hebrew, if you kind of translate it down, it basically implies that God is saying to his people, hey, I have loved you the whole time. Like through this whole journey, as you've ignored me, as you've disobeyed me, as we went through a lot of stuff together, I have loved you the whole time. My love never stopped, I'm never gonna give you up never gonna let no i'm just kidding but that's what he's saying he's saying like i have loved you through all of it through the amazing stuff through the difficult stuff i've been here and then the people respond to god so god says i've loved you and it says but you ask how have you loved us right the people who are disappointed who, who have gone through all this difficulty they're sitting there and i love how human this response is maybe it even feels familiar to you if you've ever gone through a disappointing season and like you come to a church and somebody says hey god loves you and you're like cool how right because it doesn't look like it right now it doesn't look the way that i want it to be and you're looking at the ruins of your life and it's full of disappointment it's like god says he loves me but how could he possibly loves me when life is not going the way that I want it to. It's this amazingly human question that God's people ask. Uh, maybe you've been there before if you've ever said to God, like you didn't come through like I thought that you would. 
You didn't show up like I thought you would. It seems like you didn't hold up your end of the bargain, God. Honestly, it feels like you might be a little asleep at the wheel, God. Like, what, what are you up to? What's happening? You can hear the hurt and the anger behind it. And I love that scripture doesn't hide this stuff from us. In the modern church, we tend to hide this stuff from one another, right? We put on our shiny, happy church faces and are like, praise Jesus, everything's amazing. Uh, but like half of the Psalms, the, the recorded poems and prayers uh, of the people of God, uh, sorry, a third of the Psalms are actually songs of, and prayers of lament. It's crying out to God that things aren't okay. It's crying out to God about difficulty. It's asking the question, God, what are you doing? And I'm not saying we should just be like unhinged a third of the time. I'm just saying there's space for that. And if we don't make space for that, we're missing out uh, on some of the expression of God's love for us. It's really common for us to feel hurt and for us to feel disappointed when life doesn't go the way that we planned or the way that we envisioned. Again, maybe you had a picture of what your life would look like and then you got that diagnosis and it's changed everything. Maybe you had a picture of what your family was gonna look like and things were fine for several years and then divorce shows up and, and it's disrupted and you're trying to find your way. Maybe for your life on paper, it all looks good and, and things are just fine. But inside you feel like something is missing. This can show up for us in all kinds of different ways. And if you feel that way, I want you to know that you're not alone today. That, that you're not the only one who's ever felt that way. In fact, I've felt uh, that kind of disappointment in all kinds of different ways in my life. I have friends who I have felt betrayed by at moments along the way. I've had jobs that didn't pan out the way that I thought they were going to. Uh, there's relationships in my life that look different than I thought they would. And, and, and so maybe you've been there before and you get to this spot in life where you're just like, it's not what I imagined, right? This, this isn't what I wanted. Maybe the cry of your heart is, is like the people where you're like, God, where are you? And are you still holding up your end of the bargain. That's how people felt in Malachi's day. Their circumstances didn't, circumstances didn't seem to add up to this idea that God loved them. And yet in the middle of that disappointment, God shows up and once again, God offers a promise that he's gonna set things right. So he speaks through Malachi, it's recorded in chapter three. God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord that you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. So God makes this promise. It's similar to the other promises we've looked at. He's essentially saying there's still going to be hope. There's still going to be a fresh start, that I am going to set things right. And it was all centered around the temple again because God's people in this moment are like, the temple's not what it should be. They're saying the one that you're seeking who's going to set things right. He's going to come. But it's interesting because this has like a little more detail to the promise. It starts out and says, I'm going to send a messenger. There's going to be this, this forerunner, this person who shows up and actually prepares the way. And so once again, this promise is made through the prophet Malachi. It's spoken to the people of God. And then God goes silent. He goes silent for around 400 years. In fact, Malachi is at the end of the Old Testament. And then the New Testament begins. That gap between that last book and that first book of the New Testament, it's these 400 years of silence. And I don't know why God went silent during those years. I don't know why God sometimes appears to be silent in our lives and in our difficult circumstances. But what we do know on this side of the story is that if you fast forward 400 years later, a birth is announced. And in fact, two births are announced. And, and if you jump ahead, uh, Luke, who was a doctor who ultimately followed Jesus and investigated the claims of Jesus's life, he recorded it in this way. He says that an angel of the Lord appeared to a man named Zechariah, who was standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. 
And maybe you're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. I thought this was Mary and Joseph. What are we talking about Zechariah for? So this is like that first birth that's announced that we often overlook throughout the story. Zechariah is a priest. He was in the temple just doing his priestly duties. And suddenly this angel shows up. And this angel acknowledges the desires of his heart, of his and his wife's heart. They have been longing to be able to have a child. They are late in life. It's probably at a point for them where they've given up hope. They're assuming it's not in the cards for them. But this angel shows up and promises that they are going to have a child and instructs them that they should name this boy John. And and so it's this other miraculous announcement often overlooked and, and again, it's this picture of God's promise that God is faithful, that God can show up in the most unlikely situations and, and he can still move forward his purposes. So he shows up to this old couple and he says, hey, you're gonna have a child and you need to name them John. So the angel makes that announcement and then six months later, an angel shows up to a more familiar character for us. He shows up to a little girl named Mary and the angel goes to her and says, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He'll be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. I feel like often in our like picture perfect nativity scenes, we don't give Mary enough credit because this scene is absurd. She's probably a 13 year old girl at this time and, and this angel shows up And is like, hey, Mary, you're favored. And she's like, cool. No, actually, she's not. It says Mary was greatly troubled at his words because an angel showed up, right? And she's like, I'm just trying to live my life. And here's like the presence of this holy being uh, that's about to blow up my whole world, right? It's like she was greatly troubled at his words. And I think it's cool. The angel actually says to her right out of the gate, do not be afraid. It is the most common command in scripture to, to people. It says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. But again, we, I think we often overlook, Mary didn't have to do what the angel said. Right? The angel shows up and makes this announcement, says this is what's going to happen. But she could have been like, no, it's not. Like, what are you talking about? I'm having a baby? Like, that's not how this works. Right? Like, I, I haven't been to biology class yet because I'm pretty young, but like, this doesn't seem possible to me. But that's not what Mary does. Right? Mary instead says yes. And this nobody, peasant girl, becomes the one through whom love gets a new name. It's extraordinary. This promise shows up and and her act of obedience actually changes everything. And the story goes forward. These babies are born and eventually John does grow up and he becomes that promised forerunner that Malachi talked about. He becomes that person who goes out and prepares the way and he becomes this kind of wild man character and uh, he looks different than anybody expected. He goes out into the wilderness. I kind of picture it like the scene in Forrest Gump where he just starts running and like his beard's getting longer and longer and longer and then people like see like this guy's onto something. So they all just start running and following him but they don't understand. I kind of feel like that's what John the Baptist crowd was like. It's like, I don't know, he's weird, but we're out here in the wilderness and he's very hairy and the locusts are weird, the honey's fine. Like, they're like just trying to understand what's going on and he starts preaching and he starts teaching and he starts baptizing and eventually the crowd starts to wonder, is this the guy that God has promised? Is this the Messiah who's gonna set everything right? Because we don't understand what he's doing, but it seems like there's something different about this guy. And again, Luke records this moment. It says, the people were waiting expectantly and they were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, 
but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. For us, we hear that on this side of the story, right? And we're in a church context and words like Holy Spirit and fire aren't quite as maybe intimidating, but can you imagine being there for the first time and wild man John is out there in the wilderness and they're like, are you the guy? And he's like, this is just water, right? I'm baptizing with water. You can stick your hand in it, you're fine. But somebody's coming who's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I feel like people would be like, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds impressive, right? Like, I, I have no idea, but, but basically John is pointing to Jesus in this moment. He's doing the thing that Malachi prophesied, that somebody was going to come who would prepare the way, who would announce the coming of the Messiah, the one that everyone longed for, who would set the people free. And for many of us, I think when we think about the Christmas story, we kind of stop there, Right? We hear the nativity account and it's all wonderful and wholesome, like the beasts are singing and the little babies in the manger and it's so peaceful and wholesome and squeaky clean and predictable. I think there's a danger if we forget the scandal of the story. There's this danger if we forget how absurd what we're really talking about is that Jesus, God in a body, comes to earth, not as a warrior ready to conquer his enemies, not with trumpets or a parade or any kind of fanfare or announcement, Jesus comes to earth as a baby in the middle of nowhere. And and if you've ever gone through a season of disappointment and it's led you to a really natural place where you started to question if God really loves you, right? That same question that Malachi's people were asking back in that day, how could God possibly love us in light of what's going on? If you've ever doubted it, first look to the cradle. Look to the incredible length that God went to be in a relationship with us. God put on earth and flesh and bone in order to be with us. The infinite became an infant. The God who created everything, who spoke the universe into existence, stepped down from eternity and into humanity. And again, not in any remarkable way, not with some huge announcement, but to a no-name family in the middle of nowhere. And I love uh, how author... Max Licato actually captures the humanity and the absurdity of it. It's actually even a little gross that we, as we read it because it's so human and so earthy. But he says this, God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God had come near. He came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. Were it not for the shepherds there, there would have been no reception. And were it not for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gifts. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diapers. And I don't know if they were huggies or pampers or what the cho- chosen brand was. But like, there's that power in that imagery, isn't there? Heaven peering down and seeing the God who creates and rules everything as a baby fully dependent on his mother for survival. It's absurd. It's scandalous. But that is the length to which God would go to let you know that he loves you. Th- that is the length that God would go to show you that he's with you. In fact, after these centuries of waiting, God shows up in this surprising way, but why does he do it? Well, Matthew, the tax collector, actually recorded it well 
when he said that the woman will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. And that's another one of those phrases, isn't it? We throw out in church a lot that we can be saved from our sins and it sounds like a good idea. We're like, I would prefer that to the alternative. But we often don't spend a lot of time actually teasing out or explaining what we mean by this idea of being saved from our sins. So what does that really mean? I think for a lot of us, the first version of Christianity that many of us are handed when we're young, whether it's well-intentioned or not, it often shows up as this kind of list of like, here's all the do's and here's all the don'ts. And if you do all the do's and you don't do the don'ts, you'll be fine, right? It's like this moral code that we think we're supposed to live by. (laughs) And if you're like me, you're probably handed this and you're like, okay, there's the do list. I don't do very much of that. And there's the don't list. And I've already done a lot of that. And you're just like, what now, right? Like I'm disqualified from the start. You look at this list and we fall into this kind of religious, moralistic way of living where we just try and white knuckle it and we try and make up for all the stuff on the bad list that we've done and by doing some of the things on the good list and we think if we do enough of it then maybe we'll be accepted that's not really what sin is all about and that's not really what being saved from sin is all about i love how theologian uh, cornelius platingus says this we've looked at this quote before but his definition of sin is this that sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom And in this series, we've talked about shalom, right? It was the word for peace that we looked at on week one. Shalom is this concept of fullness and completeness and wholeness. It is the way that God created the world. He made it in shalom. And he longs for the world to be restored back to shalom, to wholeness in the way that God intended the world to be. And this notion of sin, if it's the culpable disruption of shalom, what it means is that we've all contributed to the disruption and the disturbance of the way that God intended the world to work. We have all in some capacity been a part of fracturing relationships with God and with one another and even with this world and the way that we care for it. Like it's shown up in us one way or another. It's about the lies that we believe and the lies that we tell about ourselves and about others. It's about the selfishness that shows up in each of us early on and often doesn't go away. It's less about do's and don'ts and it is more about the shalom that God intended for this world and the ways that all of us violate that along the way. And before Jesus shows up, there's nobody who could take on that problem. Before Jesus shows up, like we kind of mitigated it or managed it. That was the whole sacrificial system. It's like every so often we would say, God, I'm so sorry, like we messed it up and and on and on and on it would go. No one could save us from it. But Matthew continues. And Matthew says the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Again, don't miss the power of that this season. In the midst of whatever you're facing, don't miss the power that the name that Jesus is called by is God with us. That when God looked at broken humanity, he didn't send out an announcement or a construct or a set of ideals or principles or a philosophy or even a book. Okay, we we miss that sometimes, but he didn't send, like the Bible didn't just like boom down into the manger. He sent himself He sent himself personally. God enters into sin-soaked humanity as one of us. God with us. And in theology, this is a concept that we call the incarnation. It's a big fancy word that basically means God with skin on or God with flesh on. Uh, In fact, if it's hard to understand, just think about steak tacos, okay? Because if you've ever gone to Los Trace, you're gonna start thinking about lunch, I know, but if you go to Los Trace, you look at the menu, uh, there's probably uh, something there like called carne asada, right? That carne is meat, 
In fact, I have a friend, uh, every time we'd go to a Mexican restaurant, he would order uh, carne con queso, and it would show up, and it would just look like this potentially pre-digested glob of cheese and meat, because that's what those words mean. It's meat with cheese is carne con queso. So it would show up, and it's actually delicious. But the incarnation, this is kind of a silly way to say it, but it's God with meat on. (laughs) It's like it's God with meat on his bones. It's God in the flesh, fully God and mysteriously fully man at the same time. And what that means for us can be a game changer, especially if you're in a disappointing season. Because God with us means that God is with us beyond just the mountaintop experiences. Sometimes we're tempted to think that that's where God shows up, right? When things are amazing. If you're like me and you grew up around church, I would go to church camp a lot of times in the summer and it would be this week where you like get away from everything. It's like, oh my gosh, Jesus is amazing. I'm gonna worship him with all my life and I'll give all my money to the poor and like everything's gonna change. And then you go back and like a week or two later, you're back at school and you're still you and it's like, oh, what happened, right? It's this mountaintop experience where we feel like, man, God was so real then. God with us means God is as real in the deepest and darkest valley as he is at the highest mountaintop experience. It means that God is with you even when it seems like he's silent, that God's silence does not mean his absence, and and that whatever you're walking through, you're not alone in the midst of it. He is as present where you are right now as he ever has been. So that means Jesus loves us unlike anyone else. He loves even those who betray him. If you look at the accounts of Jesus's life, Jesus loves corrupt tax collectors and politicians and prostitutes and all of the people who are supposed to be disqualified from the kingdom of God. He loves them anyway. It it goes so far that at the end of his life, Jesus prays forgiveness for the very people driving nails into his hands. That's the kind of love that he has for us. He loved without exception. So when when we say, God, how do you love us? He loves us without exception. And, And when we miss this, we fall into that funky religious way of thinking again. Unfortunately, there are a lot of churches that operate kind of in this way. We basically tend to tell people, if you behave well, right, follow that list of do's and don'ts, if you behave well, and if you believe rightly, then you can belong to a faith community. For way too many of us, we grew up at some point receiving that message, right? If you behave, you do all the right things and not too many wrong things, and you believe right, you're not confused, you have good solid doctrine or what. You behave, you believe, then you can belong. That is the total opposite posture that Jesus took. And it is the total opposite posture that we have here at Story Church, or at least the thing that we're trying to create is the total opposite of that. Because you know what Jesus did? Jesus shows up with this love that says you belong as a child of God. You have inherent dignity and worth no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what you will do, you belong. And I hope you know that's true here. The second you walk in this door, you belong here, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been. And our hope for you is that it wouldn't stop there, okay? Because we really do believe these things that we're talking about. And so our hope is that that belonging would cause you to lean in and at some point maybe have your beliefs shaped by the story of God and by the story of who Jesus is. And then and only then does it start to impact our behavior not as a way to get right with God or to get God to like us more, but because we understand that we are so loved and accepted by this God and we believe the unbelievable truth that he has grace and mercy for us, then it starts to change us from the inside out. Then our behavior begins to change as the overflow of that love. But the point is that Jesus loves all of us with this unthinkable love. Again, he was crucified by the very people he came to save. He was scorned and he was shamed for love. 
And just like we said with Mary, Jesus could have said no to the assignment. In fact, there's a little window where it almost looks like he's going to. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's towards the end of Jesus' life. He's praying. He's so stressed out. The text says he was sweating blood. And he begs God, is there any other way? And ultimately comes to the conclusion, no, right? Not my will, but yours be done. And he endures the cross for love. He endures the cross so that we might have a relationship with him. So again, if you're struggling this season, I get it. And there's room for that here. But don't forget to look to the cradle and to look to the cross and to understand the great lengths that God is willing to go to that we might be in a relationship with him. The cross is as ugly as human sin and it is as beautiful as divine love. And I love the way theologian Alexander White says it. He says, the cross is the picture of violence and yet it's the key to peace. It is a picture of suffering and yet the key to healing. It is a picture of utter weakness and yet the key to power. It's a picture of capital punishment and yet the key to mercy and forgiveness. It is a picture of supreme shame and yet the Christian's supreme boast. It is a picture of death and yet the key to life. It is a picture of vicious hatred and yet the key to love. And that's really good news for all of us. Right? If all of us are a part of the problem, that's really good news for all of us. And I can remember uh, when I was a kid, I'm a younger brother, so with an older brother, we'd often get into fights because that's what brothers do. And being the younger brother, if I ever got the opportunity to like, get a leg up on my brother while we were fighting, it wasn't just like a small occasion for me. I was going to gloat about it. I was going to rub it in his face because right? I'm the little, I'm still the little guy. But I'd like, it was a good thing. And I can remember sometimes when I was fighting my brother as a kid and I felt like I got the advantage, I would say those famous words, right? Is that all you got? Right? Like, bring it on. Is that all you got? Because I was beating him. I was winning. The cross is basically Jesus' way of saying that to sin and to death and to evil and to all the brokenness of this world. He takes it on himself and he says, is that all you got? And three days later, rises again. And listen, I haven't forgotten what holiday is coming up, okay? We're not, <laughs> I know we're jumping to like Easter here, but it's because it's, Christmas is only amazing because of Easter. <laughs> Christmas is only amazing because it means that Jesus arrived with us and identified with us in such a way that he took his love all the way to the cross and eventually rose again that we could be free from these cycles of brokenness. Or Paul describes it perfectly when he says it this way to the church in Rome. He says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, God didn't announce his love. God didn't write a book and hope that we read it. God demonstrates his love, and he demonstrates it while we are still sinners. He doesn't require us to clean up our act first. It's not about getting it together. It's about surrendering to this gift of grace and mercy from God. So if you're struggling this season, I'd invite you to look to the cradle and again, look to the cross and how do we respond to those two things? I'd say there's two ways that we can respond today as we wrap up together. The first uh, is simply this. I'd say some of us, maybe you need to come back. You need to come back to God. And, and you know, I love our church's mission statement here. We say that our job, the thing we're trying to accomplish together is to connect people's story to God's story. Again, starting with belonging, like your story really does matter here. And, and you really are full of dignity and worth no matter what you're going through or where you've been but we want to help you connect the dots that this love that we're talking about is available to you. It is available to you right here and right now, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been. And, and maybe this season, 
transparent about this love that's available for you. I, if you're honest with yourself, maybe some of us, you're like, you know what? I've been attending church for a very long time. I've been playing Christian for a very long time, but I've never really surrendered to this idea that there is a God who loves me like that. And if that's you today, that invitation is on the table for you right now. And, and if you want to take that step, like we don't have like music that's going to play and I have no magic words to give you. But, but if you'd like to have a conversation and you'd like to learn more about what it means to really accept this gift of grace from Jesus, stop by our green tent on the way out. Uh, you can mark on a card. We've got a box that says, I'd like to follow Jesus. And I'd be glad to meet with you and talk about what that could look like for you to come back to God this season. But some of us, that's our step, right? We need to embrace this love of God that's offered to us. For all the rest of us, maybe you've embraced that before. Then it's our job to live it out. We're actually called to go out and to take that love and not just keep it to ourselves. Right? It's not just supposed to give us the warm fuzzies this season. We're actually supposed to go out and, and share this good news and share this love with anybody and everybody that we meet. Again, Paul said it really well in his second letter to the Corinthian church, which the Corinthian church was a mess. So if you're a mess, you belong here. And, and Paul says this, he says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. That idea of shalom. He's saying it's, it's here. It's arriving in and through you. The old has gone and the new is here. And all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That's everything we've been talking about, right? This gift of grace and love that God has given to us. But he goes on. He says, and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's saying God reconciles us to himself and that's this amazing gift. And then he says, now go and reconcile with others. Go, here's the ministry of reconciliation. You carry this invitation of reconciliation with God and reconciliation with other people everywhere that you go. And so it's our job to go out and it's our job to invite people in because the extraordinary power of the Jesus that we celebrate this season is Jesus actually is the fulfillment of these promises that were made all these years ago. He really does bring the peace that Micah talks about. He, he really does bring hope like Jeremiah had promised. And he shows us that God, as it relates to love, that love is not just a verb that he does. Love is the noun that he is. It is his very character and nature and it's available to each and every one of us. So we've got these cards and it is like the easiest season ever to go out and do this because everybody knows what Christmas is, right? And, and so you can say, hey, I don't know what your Christmas looks like, but would you join me at my church? Would you consider checking it out? I think it could be good for you. And it's that simple, right? It, if you don't hand them the card, you're saying no for them. So just risk it, and the worst thing that'll happen is they'll confirm your suspicions and say no. <laughs> you never know what God will do with a simple invitation. It could be one of the easiest ways you go out and you invite people in this season. But either way, let me pray for you, and we'll wrap up. God, I pray for my friends here today um, that whatever this season brings us, that we'd be open to experiencing you in a new way. God, that we could really understand how faithful you were to your promises then and, and how faithful you are to us still today, even in situations or circumstances where we don't understand and it doesn't seem like it. God, I pray for my friends here today that you would bring peace into their lives, that you would be a source of hope for their lives. And God, that we would all experience your love in a profound way. I pray for the person who's here today who, who had never heard that good news before. The, the person who's been just white knuckling it and trying to get their act together and trying to clean it up and, and failing time and time again and living in that frustration. And I pray that today you would set them free from that because they would understand that they belong with you first, that you call them a son and a daughter of God. 
that you lead with dignity for everyone always. And God, that you invite them in to a relationship with you. And I pray that they have the courage to take that next step if that's where they're at today. And for all of us, God, may we be bold with our invitations. May we carry your love out into a world that's in desperate need of it. And may you get all of the glory and all the credit when we do. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.